0: Great to be with you tonight as we continue our series through the book of 1 John. And that's what we're going to continue tonight as we talk about reborn to a purifying hope. Reborn to a purifying hope. Before we get started, I'd like for us to pray together one more time. Lord, I thank you now for this opportunity to preach your word, and I just pray that You'd help me speak only that which is right, good, and true. And I pray, Lord, that your word would be powerful in our hearts and in our minds, God, to help us to think your thoughts after you, to put sin to death, God, and to live bold lives of faith, of love, of self-giving, of gospel proclamation for the good of others and for the glory of God. And I pray that you would Help us, God, to dwell continually on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And I pray that that hope, day by day, would purify us as we await the day when we shall be made pure as he is pure. So bless us, now we pray, O God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, through your word, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 John chapter 2. What does it mean to be born of God? What difference does it make in our lives? What are the evidences of being reborn and what are the benefits of it? How does new birth calls us to relate to the world and even our old selves. You see, John, in, in, in this letter, but also, of course, in, in his gospel, the idea of being born of God is an important understanding for him. It's so, something changes when you've been born of God. A difference is made in our lives. And he is using this here to these Christians in this book to, to strengthen them up against the tide of, of false teaching that is coming against them. So what can we learn uh, about what it means to be reborn to purifying hope? That's what I want to talk about this evening. And so now, uh, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand and honor the reading of God's Word. From 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. Verse 28, and now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the father has given us that we should be called children of God. I want to see three truths from our passage this evening. Number one is that God's righteousness makes his children righteous. Number two, God's love separates his children from the world. And number three, God's promise purifies his children through hope. So again, God's righteousness makes his children righteous. Number two, God's love separates his children from the world. And number three, God's promise purifies his children through hope. So first here, God's righteousness makes his children righteous. We see this in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. What I want to do real quickly to see what, what John is... To, to get a feel for what John's trying to say is just briefly a review of what, what John's doing here. There is clearly these false teachers that are within the church, and they are unsettling these believers and so really, in the book of 1 John, especially as we continue on, he talks a lot about assurance and things like that. This is a book where often people go and we talk about assurance of the faith because these people were being unsettled by these false teachers. And so what John does is he really, he's giving these, this Christian community a series of tests. A test whereby they would be able to discern... Who are true followers of God, who truly know God, who are truly part of God's family, who are truly children of God, who are truly born of God, who are truly part of the Christian community. And by so discerning that, they'd be able to discern who is and who isn't a reliable guide in their faith in Jesus Christ. Because these people were telling them all sorts of things that were very different from what the John the Apostle taught them and the other apostles taught and they were wor- wondering, well, what's true? How do I know? How do I know that what these people are telling me is true? How do I know that it's not true? What if they know something that I don't know? How can I discern who's a reliable guide in the faith or not? And so John has given several tests here. And we can look at them very briefly. In chapter 1, a key test was acknowledging and confessing our sin. Right? Uh, apparently, some of them, you know, John confronts this idea. He says, you know, uh, in chapter 1, verse um, 10, he says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. So a test of, a test of truly knowing God is having, is having the, a, a humility and an understanding that you're a sinner. And therefore, you acknowledge your sin, and you confess your sin to God. That's a, that's a, if someone who says, I don't need forgiveness, I don't have sin, you, they're not a reliable God when it comes to knowing God and to following Christ. In chapter 2, John makes clear that we must keep Jesus' commands. We must keep Jesus' commands. And the height of Jesus' commands was the command to love one another. So if someone does not express genuine love to fellow believers in Jesus Christ, they're not a reliable guy. If they're out there and they say, well, you know, forget all these people over here, then they're not a reliable guy. And then later in chapter 2, John gives what we talked about last time, he gives the doctrinal test. And that is that if there's someone who denies fundamental truths about Christianity, they were denying things about the nature and person of Christ Who is Christ? If you get that wrong, you get the whole deal wrong. And they were saying false things about Christ that somehow he wasn't in his very essence and being the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. And so anyone who denies fundamental truths of Christianity cannot in any meaningful sense call themselves a Christian. And that's just important today because you have people... That takes surveys, and if you believed in surveys, they would say something like, you know, 50% of self identified Christians don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, that doesn't make any sense. If you don't believe a core fundamental truth about Christianity, you're not a Christian. And so, John is giving them these core. Tests by which to discern who are reliable gods and and to interpret what's going on because there's this group of people and they they left the church and then this week John gives another test and it, it's they're all interrelated of course, but he puts it a different way here, and it is the test of new birth by christ's likeness it is the test of new birth by christ's uh a uh, uh, test of new birth by christ's likeness that is He introduces this idea, which he'll unpack more, about about being born of God. And so this is one of John's identification markers, like he has already talked about, that if if you're part of the true Christian community, what it means is it means you've been born of God. But he says if you've been born of God, it means if that's true of you, then that means that there should be certain evidences in your life that revealed to us that you indeed have been born of God. And so now we can look at our text here. In verse 28, he says to these Christians that he loves, and he keeps referring to them as his little children. He loves them. They're his children in the faith. He feels a fatherly responsibility to these believers. And he says, and he he tells them, he commands them, he says, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And so this this language, John, John likes this language. He gets it from John himself because it was Jesus who explained to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed about what it means to abide in him. Jesus used the image of the vine and the branches, right? So to abide... To abide means that we are living in total attachment to God. Just as, a, just as a vine draws everything, it's life, it's everything from the branch. So we too are to be connected to Christ. You know, you trim a, I've used this illustration before, you trim up your branches and you lop them off. And they look green for a little while. Then you come back the next day and they're all shriveled up. They've lost the connection to the vine. And now they're, they're dying or they're or They're dead. Right? That's how we are to be as Christians. In that same passage is the passage where Jesus talks about you know, he's the vine, we're the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Anything of real eternal spiritual value. Any any. Any work of God or graces of God that are worked in our lives come through being attached to Christ, united with him, abiding in him, where his life surges through us such that the Apostle Paul could say, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so this abiding in Christ is a central component of the Christian life because it is saying that it's no longer my life that's surging through me, but it's Christ's life that's surging through me. And, and Paul says to abide in Him. That is to walk then in a life of faith-filled, loving, obedience to Christ. Because what happens if we don't? John tells us. He says, he says if we don't abide in Christ, then what's going to happen at His coming? We're going to be ashamed. Right? It's like, you know, when you're a little kid. And, uh, you know, you get in trouble and your mom says, well, you just wait till daddy gets home. You're shamed. You're ashamed that he's coming. <laughs> Right? That's how it is. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because guess what? What if we abide in Christ? What if we live lives of humble, loving, sacrificial, faith-filled obedience for the eternal good of others and for the glory of God? Then guess what happens when he comes? You won't be ashamed. You'll be able to look Christ in the eye with a pure heart and a clean conscience and say, Jesus, with the best that I could, with a clean conscience and a pure heart, I can say I gave it all to you. I live for you. To not be ashamed. John loves his children, so of course he has, he has their best in mind. And for him, of course, the, mo- the, the greatest way he could love his children is not to just prepare them for this world, but pr- to prepare them for the world to come. It's a parable for our own parenting. To care You know, what do we care about the most for those that we love? Are we concerned not just about their temporal good, but about their eternal good? Do we love them enough to not just say, I want you to be okay today, but do we care enough about them to say, I don't want you to be ashamed at Christ's coming? And so he encourages his children thus. And then in verse 29, he says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that Everyone who practices righteousness has been righteousness has been born of him, and so uh, so again you have to keep the context in mind is that John is combating these false teachers and how the church has been unsettled by them. So what he's doing is he's again he's giving them a test. If you know, and he it's just, and he's just using simple logic to help the believers think through. What's happening here? He says, if you know that he is righteous, that God is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has born of him. And so it's evident from the letter that these who departed from the community, who embraced these false doctrines, they were also, they weren't living righteously. And so John is giving them this test. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. That is True righteousness cannot be exercised apart from new birth by the power of God. And if someone is not living a life of righteousness, they haven't been born of God and they're, they're, therefore they're not a reliable God. You shouldn't be concerned about what they're saying that you don't have in Christ. Because they don't have what they claim to. And he and he just uses the simple analogy. If God is righteous, then we know that who everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. What well, all John is simply saying is this. Is he saying, if God is your father, then you're going to look like daddy. Right? Anytime someone has a kids, the, anytime someone has a baby, the first thing people look, they're looking at the baby and they're asking, who do they look like? Mom or daddy? Well, hopefully it looks like one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it looks like one of them. So the point is this. When, when, there, when there's a parent-child relationship, for better or for worse, you're going to look like daddy. You, or, or tra- we're going to bear the traits of our parents. And all John is saying is this. Hey, if you've been born of God, if you've been born of God, you're going to, there are going to be traits of God about you, about your life. That's how John views it. It's a real spiritual birth, where you are birthed. And then, and then he goes on to this discussion about children of God. So again, it, I mean, it makes perfect sense, but we have to follow John's logic here. If you are born of God, that's what makes you a child of God. To be spiritually born of God makes you now a child of God. And so now you should bear the image of God by bearing his traits. And therefore, if our father is righteous, then we too should be righteous. And if we're not, John says, then we have not been born again into the family of God. So number one, God's righteousness makes his children righteous. We should should look like daddy. Do you look like daddy? Daddy. You know, we see somebody and we say, man, that, that's his boy right there. And not even that they look like him, but they act alike. It's weird how that happens. You, can, you say, you're, you're so-and-so's child. You can tell. They act alike. Man, when people are around you, do people say, man, something, something, something like God. They can, the aroma of Christ, can, they, can the people tell? Do they know? Pray that God would know that God is our Father. By the life that we live. So number one, God's righteousness makes his children righteous. Number two, God's love separates his children from the world. God's love separates his children from the world. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So... As John is contemplating this idea of being a child of God, and the idea of being born of God to new life, he begins to overflow in praise and gratitude at the mercy and grace of God. John, he said, he uses the word, see what kind of love, That's a, it's actually a command He's commanding his he's commanding those believers that he's writing to. He's saying, "I want you to contemplate and to think about how great the Father's love for us that we should be called children of God." And so that's what we want to do is we want to contemplate. We want to obey John and contemplate. The love that God has for us that we might be called children of God. But that if we just consider our state, like we did some this morning about how we are rebels of God. Have you ever contemplated the fact? I mean, can you imagine what we look like to God? Remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Is that they were trying to build a tower up to God and says God had to come down to try to see what they were doing? You understand that before God, we are, we are like tiny, wet, Specks of dust and rebellious dust at that. That God owes nothing to us whatsoever and all we have done for basically our whole lives as tiny wet specks of dust on this earth that belongs to God is continually shake our tiny little fists up to God and say, I'm going to do me, God. Thanks very much. And that that really the only thing that God really owes us is justice for our sin? I mean, if God wiped everybody from the world, He would not do a single person wrong, and He did that one time? And yet, as to this very world, this world of people dead in their sin, who are have nothing to do with God, who love what they're doing in their sin, this very world that, that just totally given to their sin is the same world the Bible says that God so loved that He gave His only Son. We wouldn't, we wouldn't give our children for the, for the best person in the world, much less people who wanted nothing to do with us. And yet see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. He sent His only Son into the world to pay the penalty for the sins of His children. He rose from the dead, reversing the penalty of sin for His children. He ascended on high and poured out His Holy Spirit to turn the hearts of His children back to Him. So that now all who believe in him and trust in him and follow him are now welcome back into the family of God almighty. We are those sons and daughters who have gone and taken the inheritance of the father and spent the whole thing on himself on ourselves. But then we by grace through faith in Christ have come back to him. And when we, and when we came back, God is that Father who has run to us and put a robe on our shoulders and a ring on our finger and said to the angel, stow a party. My child was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And now... As children of God, all the power and the hope of heaven are at our backs, pushing us onward and upward to the eternal glory, which is the destiny of every true child of God. Romans 8 is where Paul contemplates most deeply the idea of God's love for us. And here's just a few verses from there. In 8.15 he says, We don't talk like that, so it's, it's hard to feel the weight of what Paul's saying here. But you, you know what it means to be an heir? It means if your daddy's got a lot of money, when it comes time for your inheritance, you're getting it. The Bible says if you're a child of God, you're an heir of God. Can you fathom that? All the riches, everything that God owns. If we are his children, the Bible says we are an inheritor of it. And in the age to come, God is going to be thrilled to share all that he has with his children. Eternal, unspeakable riches in a world free from sin. Why? Because we're his child. Through Jesus Christ. Later in in chapter 8, Paul says this. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. (laughs) It's love unfathomable. Because it's love that cannot be thwarted. If God wants to do something, nobody can stop him. If God wants to love you, nothing's going to stop him. And if we are God's child through Jesus Christ, then he loves us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children. And John says here as he continues this verse. He under, you got to follow him here. He understands then that since we are children of God, something has changed about the way that we relate to the world. He goes on and says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You see... It happens a lot to people, especially who get saved later in life, and they find that all their friends who they used to hang out with all the time don't find them as cool as they used to. They love Jesus now. Something has changed. Something has changed. When we become a child of God, what John is saying is that something has changed. We used to relate to the world one way, but we don't relate... We don't relate to the world that way anymore. John says it like this. He says, the world does not know us. I take that to mean that the world, it doesn't understand us anymore. They can't relate to us in the most ultimate and important ways. God's love for us through Jesus Christ has separated us from the world. It's changed our relationship with the world, with ourselves, with sin. We don't... Like the things we used to like. We don't think the way we used to think. We don't love the things we used to love. God is changing us. He is making us like himself. Rather now than just giving ourselves over to our sin without a second thought, now there's the spirit of God within us, which is now making war against our sin. (laughs) We're changed, we're different. We don't participate in the same things we used to participate. We don't celebrate the same things we used to celebrate. We don't pursue our greatest happiness in this age and in this time, but we pursue it in the age and in the world to come. We talk about Jesus and that makes other people uncomfortable. And we're kind of those we're kind of those weird Jesus people. There are worse things to be known as. Something has changed about us. We have been, God's love has separated us from the world. And it doesn't make sense. And of course it doesn't make sense. You know, because when you think this world is all that there is, then you're going to locate and you're going to pursue the greatest happiness you can in this world. But when you believe that this life is fleeting and that there's eternity to come based on how you loved and served and obeyed God, then it it actually makes perfect sense to give all that you have. And serve Jesus Christ and lay down everything at his feet so that you can have the greatest possible happiness with him in his presence forever. It changes. It really does change things. But see, of course, it doesn't make sense to the world why you would choose Christ over the fleeting pleasures of sin. It doesn't make sense until you actually meet Christ. And then it makes perfect sense. The reason why the world does not know us, John says, is because it does not know him. To know God is to know his children. We, you know, we, we talk about all the time but you know, there really is, there, you know, there's this, as fellow believers in Jesus Christ, we, experience, we, we can have an experience of deep affinity for others whom we don't even know. You know, you ever, you ever like interacting with someone or you're talking on the phone the other day with someone and you kind of think, man, I think, I think they were Christian. And you're meeting with someone and you find out they're a believer and then, then there's an immediate connection. Why? Because we're family. Because we can understand each other in a way that the world just can't understand us. John, Jesus talking with the Pharisees, put it this way. It says, John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. God's love, it separates us from the world. It makes us different. We are, we're, we're set apart Because we've we've heard from God and we and God has spoken to us and we see Christ for who He is by the Spirit. And so it 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 changes us, it separates us. And so the point we can take away from this is this own your relationship. With your Christ. Own your relationship with your Father. Don't be, let us not be ashamed to be a child of God. And if that means that we're known as the weird religious person, then so be it. If we're known as the person, we walk up to the water cooler and then people kind of shuffle away it's okay if they know you love Jesus if they know you love them if they know that you actually care enough about them to kind of move past the superficial how's the weather to actually look them in the eye with a heart of love and say do you know my Savior people can tell if you love them and if you care and it's going to make you different it's going to set us apart but that's a good thing. And let me tell you something. As the culture keeps going the way the culture is going, you're, you're, if you really follow Christ in this world, you're only going to feel more and more out of place. Embrace it. Cherish it. Love it. Because it's the difference. It's the differences that, in our lives that really tell the world something about our Christ. So number one, God's righteousness makes his children righteous. Number two, God's love separates his children from the world. Number three, God's promise purifies his children through hope. God's promise purifies his children through hope. Verse two. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him. Purifies himself as he is pure. And so again, uh, John is strengthening and encouraging these believers by reaffirming their identity as children of God. And he's and and what he's doing is he's wanting them to really root. He's wanting them to really feel the weight of what it means to be a child of God and therefore find find their identity in that. He says he uses this language. He says, we are God's children now. That that now there, I mean, it really gives it some force. Hey, we're God's children now. We're not we're not like we used to be. We're God's children now, and because we're God's children, that means it has some concrete implications for our lives. And particularly, what it means is that as God's children, we have a new hope and a new destiny. We are God's children now, John says, and what we will be has not yet appeared. That is that as children of God, <laughs> we're going to be something one day. In this life, we kind of, you know, you know, if we're following with Christ, I mean, and we're walking in the Spirit, I mean, I, you know, anyone really walking with the Lord, they never think, oh, I've got this figured out. You always see and you feel your own weaknesses uh, the greatest. But at the same time, we can say with full confidence, as John is saying to these believers here, yeah, we're not... God has saved us. God has changed us. And God is changing us. But, but what we have, what we will be, has not yet appeared. We're going to be so one day. That craving that desire in your heart that is wrought by the holy spirit to not to 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 not want to sin anymore one day that desire will be fulfilled one day Christ is going to appear and what we will be will appear with him and we can feel it we can feel we can feel you know we can feel that we can give testimony to God that we are not who we once we were not who we once were. But neither are we what we one day will be. And we can feel it in times when we lose our cool. When that word comes out of our mouth and we can't take it back. When those feelings of bitterness and resentment over some person or situation well up in our heart and God gives us the awareness and reflection to say no that's not right and we can reflect on that and say how long oh Lord how long till you make me who I'm made to be and this is a this is a struggle that we we actually should have and should embrace for example in 2 Corinthians 5 2 Paul says For in this tent, that is our body, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Don't you want to put it on? Don't you want to put it on? Romans 8.23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's using that word intentionally. The first fruits of the Spirit. What that means is that the Spirit is indeed of us now, but that's only the down payment. It's only the first fruits. There's a full, the fullness of the Spirit is coming. Where we no longer have to groan, but we will be, we will be adopted fully, Paul says, as sons. Our bodies will be redeemed and in that day, we will made, be made fully, holy, spiritual. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls it our spiritual bodies. I think we could say our capital S spiritual bodies. And the, in, in that day, our groaning will be over. Because in that day, it won't even be able to enter into your mind to sin. What we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for for we shall see Him as He is. The theologians have called this the beatific vision. That is, there will be something about beholding our Christ with our own two eyes that will change us. When the graves, if the Lord tarries... And on that day when the graves burst open and we make eye contact with our Savior, we'll be changed. The sight of our Christ will change us. And then then John says this, And everyone who hopes thus in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. Hope. Christ gives us hope that nothing else can give. And hope purifies us. See, it only makes sense. If you have hope that you really can, by God's grace and by God's power at work in your life, that you can be something more than you are, then guess what you'll do? You won't give up in your struggle against sin. But if you believe you have no hope, you give up. But there's... But the hope itself purifies us. It gives you the strength and the courage to say, no, my labor for the Lord is not in vain. I will not give up fighting against this sin. I will not give up struggling. And and fighting for holiness. I will not give up reading my Bible. I will not give up loving this person. I will not give up praying this person. I will not give up living for my Savior. Because I know that I have this hope that cannot be shaken. And when it comes, I will be rewarded on that day. Because when I see him, I'll be changed. The hope itself changes. We have been reborn to a purifying hope. Because since we are now children of God we can be sure that God is going to give us the inheritance, the redemption of our bodies. Suppose, suppose I tell a young boy, somehow or another, and I, and I tell him, I say, I can tell you right now, without a shadow of a doubt, when you grow up, you will be the greatest baseball player who ever lives. What will that boy do? Will he quit the team and go sit on the couch? No. The the guarantee of future hope will cause him to work harder than he's ever worked. To be who he knows he will one day be. Well, if a boy would do that for earthly glory, what will we do for eternal glory? When we know What we one day will be. Perfect. Perfectly remade into the image of God. We have a hope, church. So don't give up. We have a hope, church. So don't grow weary in your struggle against sin. It won't always be this way. It won't always be this hard. God will change us, and he will make us new. It is guaranteed it can't not happen because the first fruits of the Spirit are already in us. The Bible calls it a down payment. God has made the down payment. What does that mean? It means he's already got an investment. That means he's going to come back and finish the job in you and in me. Whoever hopes thus in him purifies himself as this is pure. And as I close this evening, I just want to say that perhaps this evening in your heart, you might just think, I'm not sure that I have this hope. I want to tell you tonight that you can. If you turn from your sins and embrace this Christ, this Jesus who lived, who died, who rose from the dead, who's coming back. If you give your all to him, then you too will have all the riches of heaven. You become a child of God, a member of his eternal family, and this hope too can purify you as he is pure. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word.